being here. Um, I'm Jimmy Hurd. Uh, I am a uh, husband, uh, father, grandfather. Uh, I've been preaching full time for be 30 years this September. And uh, um, my career started in healthcare. Um, and today we're talking about uh, this problem, this issue that uh, affects all of us. And I just want to take about 10 minutes and, and really um, uh, set the foundation for Brandon uh, Holt, and I'll introduce him uh, in a few minutes. But uh, I just want to share a couple things. Uh, first of all, when it comes to problems and, and uh, issues like this, there, there are typically a number of factors that contribute um, to, to major problems and issues like this. I finished a uh, master's degree in, back in 1981. Okay. Ancient, ancient history, and um, studied health administration. I spent two years uh, with that program. The first year, uh, I spent in the School of Business, right next to the MBA students. The second year, I spent in the School of Public Health and Community Medicine, learning about the healthcare system. And when it comes to this problem, one of my perspectives is that one of the contributing factors uh, is, is the fact that um, when you talk about drugs and pharmaceuticals, uh, it's a business. It's a business. Uh, and we're trained as business people, and we're, we're trained to think like business people. And businesses, of course, in order to stay in business, have to make a profit. And unfortunately, uh, some people like to make more profits than others and more money than they really need. And so there is a, uh, a financial systemic element to this problem. I just wanted to suggest that as one of those elements. Secondly, what you're gonna to hear today has to do with a larger question, uh, and that is how, how do we deal with and respond to preachers and, and church leaders who have personal issues? What, what do we do? Now, most churches simply choose to fire the preacher, and essentially they're saying, we'll just let somebody else deal with that problem. But I just want us to think about that as you hear Brandon's story today. And then from, from the standpoint of the scriptures, um, I'm a follower of Jesus, you're followers of Jesus, and of course, um, there's a text in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in which Paul says, I will not be mastered by anything. And what that suggests is that we're following Jesus as Lord. And so if we allow something else to master who we are, we're, we're dethroning our Lord. And then finally, when it comes to the perspective of this week, uh, one more thing, by the way, in, in 1 Corinthians, uh, it mentions uh, verse 19, honor God with our bodies. That's another principle, <coughs> principle, I think, that relates to the subject as well. And then finally, when it comes to this week's theme on the Holy Spirit, uh, one of my favorite texts is in Romans 8.13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit... You put to, to death the misdeeds of the body. By the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And especially for those who, who have been or who are struggling uh, with anything to do with the body, again, the Spirit of God will put those things to death. So that's basically what I wanted to share uh, uh, this afternoon. I want to introduce um, a young man that I've been knowing uh, since he was a teenager. And uh, as a matter of fact, um, you know, I, was, I, was, I was hoping that our culture had arranged marriages because I wanted our daughter to marry <laughs> But it didn't turn out that way because she told me later she didn't want to marry a preacher. So it's like, well, what did I do? <laughs> but Brandon Holt um, is the grandson of, of G.P. Holt. Anybody know that name? G.P. Holt was uh, a pioneer preacher back in the 40s, uh, 50s and 60s, uh, no longer living, and, um, but Brandon um, has that legacy of preaching and, and ministering. Uh, he, too, is a, is a husband, a father. Uh, he preaches for the Connect Church of Christ in Baytown, Texas, which is outside of Houston. Um, and... Uh, but I, I'm glad to call him my friend. We, uh, we interact quite a bit. We, uh, we talk, uh, I don't know, at least once a week. Or I, don't, I don't return all his texts right away. <laughs> but uh, he doesn't hold that against me. And uh, Brandon 
uh, has a great, a great testimony and a great story. Uh, he's documented that uh, in his book called Preaching Under the Influence, A Minister's Struggle. And so you're going to hear his story today. Uh, he's also, um, uh, he calls himself a hope dealer. Not a dope dealer, hope dealer. <laughs> and uh, he's a licensed uh, chemical dependency counselor. Uh, so I'm going to give him uh, the rest of our time today. We'll, we'll maybe have some time for questions at the end. But why don't you welcome uh, Brandon. All right. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Brandon Holt. I'm from Baytown, Texas, 15 miles outside of Houston. I want to thank my <coughs> mentor. Every fall has a tendency. Every tendency needs a fall. Uh, Jimmy Hurd has been a great mentor to me over the years. And just glad to be with you. And I want to kind of jump straight into uh, our workshop today so that we can have a few minutes for questions uh, at the end. Uh, as you can see, I recently wrote a book called Preaching Under the Influence, A Minister's Struggle, and I'll kind of navigate through the book in our presentation. I was debating if we should make this a clinical workshop or more practical, so I tried to kind of bring them both together. So if you want to take screenshots, take pictures, notes, uh, please feel free. Okay, so I have been asked to talk about the <coughs> opioid crisis in America. Everybody by show of hands familiar with uh, opioids? <coughs> All right, who knows the difference between an opiate and an opioid? Yes, sir. Uh, an opiate is natural, opioid is man-made. Awesome, great job. Everybody hear that? An opiate, natural morphine coating, etc. opiates, opioids, those are your synthetics, your hydrocodone, oxycodone, uh, Vicodin, Percocet, etc. Okay. All right, so I want to take you on a journey. I've been sober for nine years. Uh, I don't know if anyone in here uh, is in recovery, but I've been sober for nine years, and I want to kind of walk you through the journey. 2005, 2004, my wife Crystal and I, we moved all the way from Dallas, Texas to Corona, California, which is about an hour from here down the 91 freeway. And I was 24, she was 22, we moved all the way cross country, and I had my first congregation as a senior uh, pulpit preacher at 24 years old. And so it was a, a, an adjustment for us. You know, we had one child, we had another one on the way. And I'll never forget the day we were traveling up to Big Bear for a church retreat, and I got into a car accident. And when I got into the car accident, I ended up having to have a back surgery which was five hours long. <coughs> and when I woke up from the surgery, there's a saying that the white lab coat came to me. I didn't go to the white lab coat. The white lab coat came to me. I come from a home where, you know, I never really experienced alcohol, drugs. Uh, we weren't around that growing up. My father's an elder in the church, faithful parents uh, as far as church is concerned. But I got in a car accident, had the back surgery, and the lady said, Mr. Holt, if you're in any pain, I want you to hit this pump. And I said, okay, hit the pump, boom. Had a feeling like I've never felt before, for those of you who can relate. And when I hit the pump, it's like all of my problems went away. All of my cares, all of my concerns, I had no issues. Now before that, I want to take you back when uh, growing up biracial, my mother is white and my father is black. And so growing up, uh, I was never really, I was always too dark to really fit in with my white friends. And I was always, you know, too light to fit in with my black friends. Got called all the names, Oreo, Zebra. Mm. Somebody called me a disgrace to the race one time. Mm. You know, I'm this young, so I'm, I'm always, I was questioning God, like, you know, what am I? And I, it would really, you know, bother me when people would say, what are you? As if I wasn't human, but I didn't know how to answer that question. So I grew up like so many people seeking approval, validation, validation. I want to know that I matter. I want to know that, you know, I'm accepted. Hey, do you see me? So when I first started preaching, I was 17 years old. My very first sermon stood up, got in the pulpit. And when I got in that pulpit, <coughs> all eyes were on me for about 30 minutes. And I had never experienced that because growing up, I was searching for that approval uh, from people. And that shifted me into an element of, okay, this is what it's going to take to get people to look at me. Right? Got into a car accident. Okay, now I was preaching, had the back surgery, and my life 
change from there, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about that. This is, uh-oh, this is me back in 2005, and this is me in 2000, recently 2017-18. Okay, so let's talk about the opioid epidemic. Opioid epidemic. There are four reasons why people use drugs. I'm a licensed chemical dependency counselor, and there's four simple reasons. A lot of times people say, just stop using, just stop using. Well, it's, it's, it's easier said than done mm -hmm. to tell somebody, just stop using. Everybody's affected, right? Who knows somebody who's using drugs? Mm -hmm. Who's used? Don't raise your hand. Okay. <laughs> who's using? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> All right. So let's go. Here we go. Number one, curiosity. Write that down, please. Curiosity. What does that mean? Well, when I was sitting by the bedside, I was curious. And the lady said, hit the pump. I didn't know what she was talking about, so I hit the <coughs> pump. That's why a lot of kids grow up going into gangs and drugs and inappropriate relationships because possibly they're missing some type of validation. Take the young man whose father walks away when he's young, leaves a hole in his heart, leaves a void. Now he's searching for validation. Okay? He sees it, you know, friends, drugs, sexual relationships, etc. So curiosity. So I was curious. Now, when you think about the opioid epidemic in America, curiosity, you're always going to have a stream of people who are curious. Always going to have a stream of people. So I was curious. So when I took that for the very first time, I was curious. So if you've taken any substance, I want you to think of the very first day you put it in your mouth, whether you shot it up, snorted it, smoked it, or drank it. I want you to think about it. And not just drugs, this is sex addiction, this is gambling, this is whatever addiction you can come up with, but curiosity is the first thing that segues into a life of addiction. Number two, to feel good. To feel good. So when I took the medication, I felt really, really good. Like really good. And after a while, I noticed that the physical pain was gone. And now the psychological withdrawal started to kick in. So basically what that means is one pill went to two, two went to three, three went to four, because what I was doing was I, my tolerance was building, and so now I was chasing the high. And there's an old saying, you will never experience the high like you did the very first time. Now keep this in mind, I was preaching. I was in the pulpit. I was teaching Bible study, counseling, praying for people. And I needed somebody praying for me, but I was so sick I didn't see it. A drug is a mood-altering substance. My, my mood was constantly up and it was constantly down. I was so sick because I was trying to get that euphoric high. Okay, you have opioid receptors in your brain. All right, The opioid blocks the pain and sends a, a message up to your brain that you have received a reward. And so I was constantly trying to feel good. I want to show you some of the things that I did and I can look back on it now, nine years later. I was really bad at doctor shopping. I was going from doctor to doctor. All right, I had an old tooth injury from eighth grade that I would use as an excuse to get a 30-day supply. One time I faked an illness and went to the emergency room. Didn't have insurance at the time. I was at the church, paid $1,500 just to get a 30-day supply, and it was gone in three days. What am I chasing? I'm chasing that high, right? See, when you chase that high, you will chase it at all costs just to get what you need to reach that feeling of euphoria. My wife had four C-sections at the time, too. I was that guy. <coughs> Remember, I was preaching, smiling, baptizing. Do you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God? I would take her pain medication that I would go get while she was laying in the bed and I would substitute ibuprofen medication for her Vicodin, and she didn't even know because I would get what I needed and I would give her the rest because she couldn't tell the difference. I was so bad. See, when you're in an addiction, and I'm going to segue into this opioid crisis, when you're in an addiction, everything revolves around that drug. Your family, your job, your education, your, your uh, domestic duties, everything go, you know, functions around the drug. See, people who are under the influence of substances, you know when you're going to use, where you're going to use, who you're going to use around, how much you're going to use. So 
when I would come to church, I was in such a bad state of withdrawal because by this time, I wasn't taking the drug to feel euphoric anymore. I was taking it just to function as a normal person. Because when it wasn't in my system, I was sweating. I had cramps. I had headaches. I was nauseated. I had pain. I was agitated. I was abusive to my wife. Abusive. Never put my hand on her. But I'd cuss her out. I would cuss. I would scream. I would yell. You know, on Sunday morning, I'm up in the pulpit. Let the church say amen. Mm -hmm. amen. My sons are down on the front row. They saw me acting up at home. Let the church say amen. Wasn't me. At the time, I thought it was, but it was the drug. So when I was under the influence and I was sweating and I was really going through a bad place, I would come to church. Uh, uh, I used to put uh, washcloths in my armpit preaching. Heard, I, I didn't come up from a home like this. I didn't come up in a home like this. Never thought it could have happened to me. But I would have you know, arm washcloths so the sweat wouldn't bleed through my suit. I had hundreds of people out there watching me every Sunday. And remember, I wanted approval, so I needed to make sure I was, I was in a normal state. So I was so good, I would sit on the front row. I would sit on the front row, and I was about to get up to preach, and I'd have a couple pills in my hand, and I was so quick, I would cough. <coughs> and I'd, I'd knock about three of them down just to get me going before I hit the pulpit. Because I needed it to function, because I started breaking down sitting on that front pew, and everybody else is behind me singing, Oh, how I love Jesus. And I'm sitting here as a minister, battling for my life. I was battling. I was, I was deteriorating internally. I'm preaching, trying to save people, and I felt like I needed somebody to save me. So I got up to the pulpit, started preaching, and I, again, at that time, the, the, I wasn't getting high anymore. I was just trying to stay normal. So I would keep a cup of, of grape juice. And I'd keep five pills absorbed in the juice <coughs> in, in the pulpit. Nobody knew it was styrofoam. And the reason I kept it liquid is because it would hit my bloodstream quicker. So while I'm up preaching, if I felt myself going there, my words slurring, getting agitated, sweating real hard, I would just take, I won't really drink out of your cup. But I would just take it and I would just sip it couple times, put it back down until I felt myself kind of coming back again. And I was really, really sick. I was sick. Looked at pornography. I looked at pornography at church in the office. Had my computer set up where nobody could see it. Didn't know at that time that you could check the, the history and I didn't know how to delete stuff. I was 24 years old, 25. I was really, really sick. So Make a long story short, I went to preach in Fresno, California. Anybody know the Tahoe family encampment? Uh, I went there to preach, and I was coming home, and my wife said I left. She was gone. Came home. Everything was gone. She left me a bed to sleep in. Took the kids, cleaned the house out. Had to leave the church. I really wasn't mad that she left. I was mad because I lost my church. Because that's where my priorities were, the church and then my family. And I also wasn't really upset that she left because now I could use, take as many pills as I wanted to and I didn't have to sneak around. But God had to show me that as a man of God, your number one priority is your family and then your congregation. Because if your family's not right, then your church is not going to be right. So I moved back to Dallas, didn't have any money, left the church. I left. Remember, I grew up in the church. That's all I knew growing up. But I felt like God had walked out on me. The, the God that I prayed to, and you know, when I went to Bible class and memorized his scriptures, I felt like he left me. I would sneak into church when nobody knew me. I'd sit on the back row. I would still have my pills in my hand. And I was just thinking, is there anything left in me that can be saved? I leave before church is over because I don't want to talk to people. Started doctor shopping. You know, again, in Dallas, got red flagged. They red flagged me. I remember the day I went to the dentist, 30 miles away, tried to get some opiates. And they said, we can't give them to you. And I got really, really upset. And they said, because you've gone here, 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 here. So then I started buying them off the street. So to make a long story short, I think you all kind of get the gist. And it's all in this, it's all in this book. And also... It triggered a mental health disorder in me. 
a substance induced bipolar disorder. I was good coming up. I was an athlete. I was mentally strong. I was healthy. But when I started using, it triggered a mental health disorder. And I take medication to this day. <coughs> I take a low dosage of medication to keep me stable. Now, it took me a long time to come out with this. But I'm in a place in my life now where it's not about me. I had to get out of the way, and I had to put this book together because somebody else needs to read it. Amen. And everybody knows somebody, I believe, who Amen. needs to read this book. So, son called me one day, and again, it's, the details are in the book. Son called me one day, Dad, when are you coming home? You know, that really kind of hit me, my oldest son. And I thought about it, you know, I don't want my son seeking that approval that I sought, that validation, same skin complexion. And if I don't get back in his life, now I still think my wife put him up to it. We always <laughs> joke about that. We've been married 14 years now, but uh, that, that just made me think that he needs his father. I came home, and then that's when the road to recovery began. But it began when I picked up the phone and made a call because I had been hiding it for so long but I picked up the phone and called somebody and said, hey, I have no more secrets. I'm at rock, I'm below the rock. Mm. I'm not at the rock, I'm below the rock. And if I go back down any further, I may not make it back out. Should have been in jail. I used to drive with pills in the console in, in my car. No container. I didn't know what a possession charge was. I mean, I work in the prison system now, and I'm looking back <laughs> on my life like, I should have been dead or I should have been in prison, but God, I guess, had something else in store for me. So uh, leading into that, so curiosity to feel good, to feel better, that's basically when uh, you're just trying to normal out. You're trying to, you're trying to normal out, but everything around you is being harmed at the same time. And then, of course, to do better. What does that mean? That means so that you can function. Any questions on this before we move? Okay. All right, drug categories, basically from your DSM-5 uh, Diagnostic Statistic Manual. Uh, this is how we diagnose our clients when they come in for an assessment. Uh, there's a list of criteria, questions that we ask that will classify if it's a moderate, mild, or severe substance use disorder. Mm. Take, yeah, okay. So the opiate epidemic. Opiates are a class of drugs naturally found in the opium poppy plant. Some prescription opiates are made from the plant directly, and others are made by scientists in labs using the same chemical structure. Opiates are often used as medicine because they contain chemicals that relax the body and can relieve pain. Prescription opiates are used mostly to treat moderate to severe pain, though some opiates can be used to treat coughing and diarrhea. Opiates can also make people feel very relaxed and what? High. High, which is why they're sometimes used for non-medical reasons. This can be dangerous because opiates can be highly addictive and overdoses and death are common. Mm. Heroin is one of the world's most dangerous opiates and is never used as a medicine in the United States. Now keep in mind, the heroin epidemic is huge right now because the opiates are so expensive out on the streets. I mean, you're talking about $80 for one pill of oxycodone out on the streets. Heroin is a lot cheaper, it's the same family. Okay. Uh, how do prescription opiates affect the brain? So opiates bind to and activate opiate receptors on cells that's located in our brain. So your brain has cells, opiate receptors, okay? Your brain, your spinal cord, and other organs in the body, especially those involved in feelings of pain and pleasure. When opiates attach to these receptors, they block pain signals sent from the brain to the body and release large amounts of dopamine throughout the body. This release can strongly reinforce the act of taking the drug, making the user want to repeat the experience. Remember what I shared with you earlier. Curiosity, what's number two? To feel good, to feel normal, better, and to do, let's do that again. The first one is curiosity, to feel good, which is euphoria, to feel better, and to do Better. Good. All right. Prescription opiates and heroin. Prescription opiates and heroin are chemically similar and can produce a similar high. In some places, heroin is cheaper and easier to get than prescription opiates. So some people switch to using heroin instead. 
Nearly 80% of Americans using heroin, including those in treatment, reported misusing opiates prior to heroin use. However, while prescription opiate misuse is a risk factor for starting heroin use, only a small <coughs> fraction of people who misuse pain relievers switch to heroin. This suggests that the prescription opiate misuse is just one factor leading to heroin use. And you can read more about it through National Institute of Drug Abuse. Pregnant women, this is very common. A lot of babies are born addicted to the opiates. If the mother's addicted prior to uh, getting pregnant and during her pregnancy, if she's withdrawing while the baby's in the womb, then the baby starts withdrawing as well. So that's why the mother takes a fix to calm the baby down. When the baby is born, the baby is born addicted to the opiates. Then the mother, baby goes to CPS, mother possibly gets arrested for you know, the laws involved. Okay, if a woman uses prescription opiates when she is pregnant, the baby could develop dependence and have withdrawal symptoms after birth. This is called the neonatal abstinence syndrome, which can be treated with medicine. Use during pregnancy can also lead to miscarriage and low birth weight. Tolerance versus dependence. Long-term use of prescription opiates, even as prescribed by a doctor, can cause some people to develop a tolerance. And you know your tolerance, one beer goes to two, two beers goes to three. Now you're drinking a, a 12 pack at eight o'clock in the morning, okay? And you're not taking it to get intoxicated, you're taking it to function. Which means they need a higher and more frequent dose of the drug to get the desired effects. Drug dependence occurs with repeated use causing the neurons to adapt so they only function normally in the presence of the drug. The, abs the absence of the drug causes several physiological reactions, mild case of caffeine, potentially life-threatening, such as with heroin. Some chronic pain patients are dependent on opiates and require medical support to stop taking the drug. Drug addiction is a chronic disease characterized by compulsive, uncontrollable drug-seeking and use despite, here's the key word. What's the key word? Harmful. Despite what? Because okay? I don't care about my consequences because what am I chasing? What's the number one? Curiosity to feel to feel good, to do, and to no curiosity, feel good, feel better, normal, do better. Okay? And I'll do that in spite of the consequences that are around me. Alright, so the three waves. The first wave, and I'll I'll email this to whoever wants it. I'll be glad to give it to you. Just please don't try to counsel anybody with it unless you're a licensed professional. The first wave began with increased prescribing of opiates in the 1990s with overdose deaths with overdose deaths involving prescription opiates, natural and semi-synthetic opiates and methadone, increasing since at least 1999. Second wave in 2010 began with rapid increases in <coughs> overdose deaths involving heroin. Third wave, 2013, with significant increases in overdose deaths involving synthetic opiates, particularly those involving illicitly manufactured fentanyl, which is a combination with heroin, counterfeit pills, and cocaine. Fentanyl is 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine. That is a hot drug on the streets right now. Facts. Who'd like to read the first fact? Drug overdose deaths have become the leading leading cause of injury death in the U.S. Instances higher than deaths caused by <coughs> accidents. Okay, someone else? 64,000 Americans died of opioid overdose in 2016, higher than guns, car crashes, and HIV AIDS ever killed in one year in the USA. Hmm. These are just a few facts that I pulled out. 150,000 are expected to die in the next 10 years for opioid abuse. Mm -hmm. 300 million. What was that number you just read? <laughs> Can you say that again? You said 300 million. <laughs> 300 million? Yeah. Wow. Wasn't it like, what? Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. 300 million opioid prescription sweetening. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> And what year was that? 2015. Every day. Every day. 
115 people. This is just an estimate. No one knows exactly how many. 115 people die from opiate overdose. And also, if you ever get a chance, go to the National Institute of Drug Abuse. Great information on any type of drug. The National Syndromic Surveillance Program, 91 million people, emergency room visits, 142,000 opiate overdoses. Now, how do people misuse these drugs? Prescription opiates used for pain relief are generally safe when taken for a short period of time. What's the key? Short, short period of time as what? Prescribed. As prescribed by you or the doctor? The doctor, yeah. But they can be misused. People misuse prescription opiates by taking the medicine in a way or dose other than prescribed, taking someone else's prescription medication. I used to do that too. Hey, you got some pills? You got some pills? Taking the medicine for the effect it causes to get high. Points to remember, prescription opiates are used mostly to treat moderate to severe pain through some opiate, though some opiates can be used to treat coughing and diarrhea. And I'm kind of speeding through this because I know some of you have questions and I want to open it up. A range of treatments, including medicines and behavioral therapies, are effective in helping people with the disorder. People misuse the opiates by taking medicine in a way other than prescribed. Opiates bind to and activate opioid receptors on cells located in the brain, spinal cord, and the GI tract. A range of treatments, including medicines and behavioral therapies, are effective in helping people with opioid use disorders. Naloxone. Naloxone is a medication designed to rapidly reverse the effect of opioid overdose. Anybody heard of Narcan? Big debate going on CNN and Fox right now. It is an opiate antagonist, meaning that it binds to the opiate receptors that can reverse and block the effects of other opiates. It can quickly, it can very quickly restore normal respiration to a person whose breathing has slowed or stopped as a result of overdosing of heroin or prescription opiate pain medication. The question is, should this be given to active opioid users? That's the debate. Okay, if I'm an opioid user and you give me this tool, this medication, and it comes in three ways, or two ways, three ways, injectable, auto-injectable, and prepackaged nasal spray. You can inject it, you can take a device, it'll audibly tell you how to inject it, or you can go through the nose. The police officers go through the nose with the spray. Should we put this in the hands of someone who has an opioid use disorder? So one side says, yes, because all lives matter. But the other side says, look, if you put this in the hands of someone who's an active opioid user, you are giving them a permission statement to keep using. And if I know that I have something that's going to help resuscitate me, I'm going to continue killing, stealing, robbing, committing crime to get my drug because I know I have a tool that can save my life. The drug dealers are the biggest suppliers of the Narcan. Why do you think that is? Because they don't want to lose their clients. They don't want to lose their clients. <laughs> so if their clients are OD, let me resuscitate you, bring you back, give you some more dope. So that's a big debate that's going on right now. All right, almost done here. Uh, the prescription drug monitoring programs, what are we doing about that today? PDMP is a statewide electronic database that tracks all controlled substance prescriptions. Authorized users can access prescription data such as medication dispensed in doses. The PDMP, as you can see, the government is starting to pour millions of dollars into states to help try to track, identify patients who are doctor shopping, all right, tracking prescriptions, also to calculate the total amount of opiates that are prescribed per day. To identify patients who are being prescribed other substances that may increase risk of opiates such as benzodiazepines, that's your Valium, your Xanax, your Librium, et cetera. So the PDMP, the main thing is to track, also to track the fatal and non-fatal overdoses so they can see what the cause is, then they can take it to the stakeholders and then they can present how much money they need for each state to beef up the treatment. Another question. I'm not a political person, at least not here today, but a political statement was made by somebody that all the drug dealers should be put to death. Y'all hear that? Get the death sentence, pending the severity of the case. I was asked that recently on a talk show, and I declined to answer it because they really didn't want to hear my answer. Because my answer as a licensed counselor is treatment. I've worked in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, and I've seen not just drug users come through, but I've seen drug dealers come through. 
when they come through our program, we teach life skills, rehabilitation, how to get a job, keep a job, anger management, communication, family skills, social skills, to rehabilitate these guys so that they can go back out into society and go try to help somebody else who ran in that life with them. Okay. All right, treatment options. This is what everybody asks. Uh, Jimmy Hurd asked, and then I'll finish up. And also today, I'll tell you about this in a minute. All right, so treatment options. If your preacher, if one of your members, preachers, elders, leaders, has a substance use disorder, or one of your just regular members has an addiction, maybe gambling, pornography, shopping, caffeine, whatever, we want to get them some help, don't we? We want to get them some help. If they look like us, sometimes if they come in off the street, we stereotype them, hey, we can't help you, go up to the shelter up the street. But if it's one of our members, oh, we go above and beyond, especially if they're one of the big givers. Now, what if your preacher falls into addiction, or your elder or your deacon, but namely your preacher? The mindset is, we got to cut him. We got to sit him down. May not even keep him because he, he can't preach to us if he's under the influence. I agree, but the key is, why would we treat the preacher different than the member? Because they're both we're both members of the body of Christ. Because mm -hmm. addiction doesn't care what you look like. It doesn't care how much money you have, where you come from, what kind it, it cares nothing of it's no respecter of persons. Anybody can fall. Alcohol's not my thing. I could drink a beer, it won't do anything to me. Maybe if you drink a beer, it will trigger a life of addiction. So what do we do when one of our members falls, especially one of our ministers? The key to me is try to get the person some help. Get them some help. Here's the different types of treatment, individual and group counseling, outpatient, inpatient. I've worked both. Right now I'm working in, in a residential treatment TC, therapeutic community. One-year program, all men teaching life skills, how to rehabilitate areas in their life that they lost, Recovery, support services, 12 steps, intervention, medication-assisted treatment. I did the Suboxone, worst thing I could have ever done, got hooked on that. Wish I had time to tell you about that. Methadone, anybody heard of methadone? Okay. Um, so one of the things that I really want to close with is this big word right here, intervention. Who's that person that you know right now who's battling? Take a minute. Who is it? Who is it? Who's that person that's struggling that you know? You love them, too. You love them. You've told them to stop a hundred times. They won't. Matter of fact, they've probably stolen from you before. Embarrassed you. Showed up drunk. So you call and say, hey, I want to get such and such some help. We set up an intervention. An intervention is where all the family comes together, and I do these. Family comes together. And we get together, we strategize, and we bring the person who's addicted in. In an intervention, you have to be willing to cut that person off from the family. Period. I want, them, I want to get them some help. I want them to stop you. Do you? Because as long as they know that they've got an inside enabler, they're going to keep on doing what they're doing because somebody's going to step in and save them every single time. So in an intervention, you come to the intervention, we have your bags ready to go, the treatment center has been called, the, the taxi is ready, the airplane tickets are purchased. Well, I gotta go to work, I got, uh-uh, let's go. But you have to be willing, if you don't get in this car and come today, you are no longer allowed to call this family, you cannot come over this house, we will not contact you, you are no longer welcome. We will pray for you, but you are no longer welcome. We are cutting you off. No family get-togethers, no Christmas, no nothing. You're done. So if you really want somebody to get well, you have to mean what you say and say what you mean. Because if you don't, they're going to continue to spiral. And then when they're dead, then people come together and say, I should have did this. Should have did that. Should have been more serious. But that's a lesson on codependency, which is a whole other lesson. Because that enabler, every family got an enabler. Somebody in here is an enabler right now as we speak. 
You are the enabler of the family. You depend on people to depend on you. Mm. Y'all get that? Mm-hmm. You depend on people to depend on you. So, okay, I could go all day. This is such, I love talking about this. Here's some resources if you want to screenshot this. If you know someone who is in need of help, there's a 24-hour hotline. They'll give you guidance and direction. Uh, put Anita on there, National Institute of Drug Abuse. SAMHSA, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services. They'll give you all the information you need. It's all anonymous. All you got to do is make a phone call. One of the things that I do um, is I go to, I put it on here. There we go. Uh, I go to churches and I do workshops and seminars. Uh, I have about 15 different topics from anger management, family, social, relapse prevention, CD education, codependency, you know, legality issues, and we customize it based off of what the church needs or the community. And we'll come in on a Friday or a Saturday or whatever works. We'll do a, a workshop, and then on Sunday we'll preach, teach, sign books based off of whatever uh, you need. So uh, if you're a congregation or you know someone who wants to address these issues, uh, please uh, keep me in mind and I would love to come. Okay, so let's open it up for questions. And we did that. Uh-huh. So the Brandon's book, uh, there's a table uh, set up at the entrance, so feel free to pick up a few copies left. Uh, also, if you'd like a copy of the PowerPoint, uh, if you could just write your name or your email mm-hmm. or phone number here, I'll mail that to you tonight. Absolutely. And also, I, I'll sign your book for you. Whoever you want me to sign it to will take a picture. It'll be yours, and I'll pray that it's a blessing to you. Books are $20, cash. Prefer a card if you have a card, but whatever works for you. Should I, should I mention the doctor? No. Okay. No, not yet. Not yet. I can't it's not out there. How, you do, I, how do you identify an opioid? I'm sorry? How do you identify an opioid? That's a class. What about how you have an individual name? I'm sorry? How do you identify so, so the opioid? drug itself, so yeah. how do you, how do you know if a drug is an opioid? Yeah, okay. exactly. Hmm. That would be a question you would ask the physician who prescribes it. Now, you can do that. You can go online. A couple factors. If, pres- if it's prescribed, you would ask your doctor. If it's something you get off the street, then you ask somebody before you take it. Hey, what is this? So there's tons of information online if you go to National Institute of Drug Abuse. Yes, sir. Share with us how you got back with your wife. Okay. A lot that of begging. Help us <laughs> A lot of begging. Still begging today, you know, nine years later. Uh, but I actually had to change because I was the one who was as sick as my secrets. I was the one. I was the issue. She didn't leave me. She left the drugs. She left the behavior. So once she saw that I made the step to change, it wasn't an immediate reconciliation, but we slowly had to grow. We went to counseling, marriage and family therapy. Uh, I went to counseling. And also when she saw that I started taking my medication and I was consistently taking it, then she could see that I was putting the work in. And so that's how we got back together. Praise God. Yes, sir. So uh, I'm an anesthesiologist, so I administer these drugs on a daily basis. <laughs> uh, but for a good reason. Yes, sir. But I just wanted to clarify a point and then ask a question, and that is I think the medical community certainly bears some responsibility for the nature of things and how they've developed within this opioid crisis. There, there's been a transition early on, and I think part of it was we were criticized for not dealing with chronic pain and pain issues, uh, and therefore policies were instituted to be much more liberal with the administration of narcotics, and that's led much to the problems that we have now. And unfortunately, now we're swinging back to a situation where um, we're sort of reluctant to treat people's legitimate pain, and that's a problem. And we don't have good alternatives to a large degree. So, that's right. That's right. right. So, um, but my question is. You talked about enabling. Um, part of this uh, unfortunate circumstance that many families get in is enabling sometimes is providing options for treatment. Do you agree with that? Because I am aware and have personal interaction with the situation where there's another treatment program and then another one. You talked about being under the rack. Is it better? Sometimes helping can hurt, correct? And even when it comes to providing options for treatment, mm-hmm. if in fact they're not. Awesome question. So I just had this happen the other day. I was doing an assessment, and we were doing a screening. We had a young man come in with his family. So when the mother found out what kind of program it was, all right, we're a one-year program. We're very strict. We're tough. 
all of a sudden he started saying, Mom, I don't want to come here. Mm -hmm. So she started saying, okay, let's go to another treatment center. And so they left and they went to another treatment center and he ended up back at our treatment center. So yes, enabling is simply, I'm trying to rescue you and I'm trying to take care of you. So I, I totally agree with that. Okay. Absolutely. Did I answer your question? Yeah. You sure? Yeah. Mm. Okay. I want to make sure I did. All right, we got time for two more. Yes, ma'am. Will you elaborate on why the Suboxone didn't work? Well, Suboxone has an agonist and an antagonist. An agonist is what causes you to feel high, but the antagonist comes in and it blocks the high. And of course, you being an anesthesiologist can, can concur. So the Suboxone for me, the day I took it in the barbershop for the first time, my prescription, I had no desire to use anymore. Right? All of my urges were gone, so I kept on taking it. And I didn't know at the time that it was supposed to be a short term, you know, whatever the doctor prescribed. So I took it for nine months. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have insurance, and I was paying $800 a month for it. So I became addicted to the Suboxone because I still felt that, almost that state of euphoria, but bam, it was cut off. So I would take more and more and more and more, and I got hooked on that too. But that's me. It may work for other people who may take it and taper down, because I cut a cold turkey one day. And I didn't know you weren't supposed to just cut cold turkey. <laughs> and I was very sick for a long time. So again, from my perspective, it helped me get away from the known opiates, but I became hooked on that one drug to the next. So, all right, we've got time for one, two, three more. Yes, sir. Uh, we had a, a guy So let me say this real quick, because that's a very complicated answer. There's five stages of change. Pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, and maintenance. Pre-contemplation, I don't have a problem. Contemplation, maybe I do, maybe I don't. Preparation, I got a problem, need to change. Action, I'm changing. Uh, maintenance, I'm maintaining the change. So when somebody leaves the church or somebody gets off of drugs, everybody's in a stage of change. And what we can't do is force people to believe a certain way and force people to change. They've got to change on their own. All we can do is continue to encourage, motivate, inspire, and provide the additional resources to try to help that person change. If I can just add one more. I think another thing that's, that's critical too is maintaining the relationship. Absolutely. Because a lot of times, Keep the a person report. is going through something, we demonize them, they become separate from that's the right. fellowship, that's and they right. never come back. That's so right. maintaining that relationship throughout the whole process. Absolutely. Yes, sir, you had your hand up? Yeah, uh, so I work in campus ministry down in Birmingham, Alabama, but I work patients south side downtown Birmingham. And as a result of our location, I have a lot of running with homeless guys. I've become quite close to it through really truly struggle with heroin, all sorts of things. So my question is, um, what kind of on-ramp in conversation with them uh, questions, or how can I kind of talk with them about those things without being, I mean, obviously not ignorant, I don't say something stupid, but like you're talking about for yourself, you're preaching, needing to be saved from the struggle, let people to know about how can people help someone even open that door of conversation without coming across as just ignorant or just, you know, over the top? Or just or like, yeah, or condescending. Like, how do you have that, like, right. about, tell me more. Like, what is it? Right. What are those things? Right. And again, uh, great question. You guys can email me, but I'll give you just a snapshot. The key is rapport. Building rapport. Jesus came down where people were. He didn't talk down to them. He built rapport with mm -hmm. people. 
when I build rapport with someone, I'm not going to immediately come in and say what my end game is, which is to try to help you get out of your situation. I'm going to try to build a relationship so that now you're coming to me saying, hey, how can I get what you have? But there's so many factors when you talk about someone who's indigent, possibly living on the streets, because now you have co-occurring disorders. Mm-hmm. You know, substance-induced, mental health-induced, and, you know, you've got a lot of different variables and factors going on. But, again, the key is rapport, from my experience. All right, we've got time for one more question. Yes. Just a statement about Celebrate Recovery. Yes. Which is a 12-step uh, mm-hmm. Christian mm-hmm. support program, and we have that in our church, and it's been a great support for many, many people who are either trying to get into recovery or in recovery. Amen. That's yeah. awesome. Keep doing that. Yes, ma'am. I just want to say our church supports a local, very local um, organization called Jeremiah Tree in Xenia, Ohio. Okay. That is a recovery for men doing quite well. We have the members of our church have lost two members in their family, mm-hmm. brother and his sister, to overdose. And yes, I've been ma'am. in pain management for eight years, and I've been writing these prescriptions. So of those millions that were written, I probably wrote 7,000 that, that year. And every patient that comes to me, we talk about getting down, getting off, you know. But one thing that we found a couple years ago, we did something called the SOAP R, and it's where you um, ask these patients questions to see how likely they are to maybe misuse their medication. And what I found that was really astonishing, and I don't know who to tell. I don't, I don't know who, who can know this information, but question number 23 is have you ever been sexually abused? 90% of my women on opiates have been sexually abused. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. I, and that was so surprising to me. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't know that. that so I don't know what to do with that. Mm-hmm. I don't know mm-hmm. who to tell that to. I don't know how to make a change for our women who are on opiates. Who can we tie her to? Yeah. Again, relationally. I have a piggyback. I have mm-hmm. a piggyback. Right. I, I'll talk to you after class about that because I got a resource I can send you to. My, piggy, my piggyback on that is I volunteer with Alongside Ministry, which is a, a ministry that goes into the prisons for men and women. And the women that we mentor, almost, mm-hmm. I don't even know the percentage, it's just hugely high, mm-hmm. got there because of sexual abuse, and then they became drug addicts. And they did felonies that were, mm-hmm. you know, caused them to go into prison. And the, this program is helping them get new lives and and the key so there is a connection for sure right and there's so many resources available and i have to remember i have a scope of practice we all have our own scope of practice Mm -hmm. so you can go online and google someone and target exactly you know what answer you're looking for and refer 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 to that person one last thing i'd like to say if you want to get a book today please bring your cell phone i would like to take a picture on your phone so you can post it to social media or keep it and send it to somebody. If Thank you, you like so the PowerPoint, I have a, give me an email. We'll send that to you. Thank you.